Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Owen Ken and Murph all here. Hi guys. Hello there. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Chelsea finally put the Premier League title race out of its misery this weekend. But the big stories are happening at the other end of the table. The big characters are emerging from the relegation fight. None bigger, Ken, than John Carver, a local lad. John Carver yeah. He suddenly Looks like a man Who suddenly realised The full horrors Of spending the rest of his life As the local lad Who managed to get Newcastle relegated <laughs> After taking over a team That was floating along Inoffensively In mid-table But if he is going to go down He's bringing his players down With him Yeah uh, <laughs> I think that's that. It seemed as though That was very, very much Weighing on John Carver's mind After the match He uh, Okay so Newcastle Is 3-0 They have two men Sent off uh, their fans have completely turned on them. And the Leicester fans have joined in with the Newcastle fans <laughs> uh, and are singing about Mike Ashley and so on and so forth. But um, John Carver's thinking to himself, I I really don't fancy being part of this. I, <laughs> I really do not fancy having to go down with the ship here. I'm going to strike out here for, for dry land. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to denounce the players. Essentially, John Carver pointed the finger at Mike Williamson uh, his centre back, uh, and suggested that he had got himself sent off deliberately uh, because, well, he didn't say because. What he said was, "Is it? An, he's going to get a two-match ban now. Is it an easy way out? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, when he came into the press conference and after doing these explosive interviews, the explosive interviews, incidentally, which were delayed for a while because Carver was theatrically um, uh, giving out to his squad, you know, he was he was about as an, I was about as animated as I've ever been in my football career, uh, <laughs> said Carver said. But he came in and people said, "Did you say Mike Williamson got sent off? Why why would he do that?" And Carver's like, "I don't know. <laughs> I, I really don't know. What did Mike Williamson say when you said this to him? I'd rather not go into that." <laughs> so amazing. He had a kind of an attack of discretion. At yeah. the point at which, just you know, after, after the the horse had bolted, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I th- I think that uh, Owen struck on the central treat there with John Carver in that everyone does seem to think that he is a nice man. Uh, everyone seems to know where he's from, i.e., local lad, and that he loves the club. But unfortunately, what John Carver is soon going to be known as local lad relegated the club. Yeah. which is not uh, a future that John Carver particularly enjoys looking ahead to. You made a point, Ken, in your Irish Times column this morning that nobody is massively criticising Carver just purely because everybody in Newcastle despises uh, Mike Ashley so much. He's the villainous figure in all this. Mm-hmm. And in years to come, in 20 years, Newcastle supporters will certainly remember him in a way harsher, like way harsher. he'll be this monstrous figure in the history of Newcastle, especially if they end up getting relegated again. But I do think that when there's somebody that big, when there's a figure that's going to loom that large in Newcastle history in a negative way, people will get bored. Ultimately, filmmakers in 10 years, 20 years' time, columnists, people will get bored reflecting purely on Mike Ashley. It'll yeah. be, it's, it's like talking about Saipan. What more can you say about it? So the more minor figures will then become 
the centre points. If I see John Carver at 30. the centre of a 30 for 30 <laughs> in about 10 or 15 years' time, uh, sure, we all remember Mike Ashley, but who was the manager? Who was the local mm. lad who took the club down? <laughs> and then in comes John Carver. There can only be one Bond villain, though. You know, you can have henchmen, obviously. Yeah. Um, someone maybe in the, the first two reels, you know, to, to sap up some of that hate. But there can only be one Bonville. And that, John Carver is mightily relieved, I would say, uh, that that rule exists. Because, I mean, he's doing a, you know, a historically bad job of managing. He's doing a United. really awful job. And I mean, the thing is that this, this is the first really terrible terrible thing that he's done that everybody has seen. Report on sport. Let's get into this. Let's get into the backtrack here. I mean, Carver, you know, he was saying in the in the interviews afterwards, he was like, you can talk all you like about tactics. You can talk all you like about preparation. But if you're not prepared to go and get your head on things and get a cut in the face, and that's what these fans love, they'll give you the freedom of the city. Essentially, walk off that field. Walk off that field uh, dripping... Um, with with blood from wounds, head wounds. That's what Newcastle fans want to see. I was reminded of something David Stubbs wrote once about Stuart Pearce, um, writing, uh, this is a man who would run through brick walls for the club, you know, quite literally on the training ground, <laughs> you know, as he staggers away, teeth broken, days, you know, blood streaming from the collision of skull and masonry, turns to his players and points the fingers and bells, now you! <laughs> <laughs> but you know this this seemed to be what Par- uh, Carver was um, essentially telling the players. But you know, I mean, I, I did wonder how much preparation, how much tactical preparation was actually going on. Although Carver did have did make a salient point. You know, if if you don't do really simple things like trying to head a ball away for Brizio Colaccini, it was obviously the man he was talking about in the action in the first minute. Then um, <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to win too many matches. Um, but, you know, the, when he comes out and, and attacks the players in this way, it's clearly terrible management. You know, maybe he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to shame the players into a, into a fighting response here. But, you know, if, if this kind of thing, this is, you, you, this is not the way to do it. You know what I mean? You don't come out and publicly do it. You can't do it at all, I think, if you're in a position John Carver's in, Especially, where you don't have their respect yet. No. If you're Jose Mourinho, you can shame a player, maybe. And even then, when Jose shames a player, he's actually in the process of kicking them out of the club. A manager who has, I'm sure they all think he's a good coach, you usually hear that anyway, great coach, but he just doesn't quite have it as a manager. Mm. I think you have to be pretty careful with what you're saying publicly about players who are already already don't actually respect you as a manager. You do. I mean, there's some, and, and he, he, the way he was talking about himself as well, saying, you know, I'm a, you know, I can't do it for them. You know, I would do, the implication being I would do it. If I was out there, I'd be heading those balls away. Well, unfortunately, I can't do it. We've got these guys instead, and they're, you know, they're not doing it. And then he also he also singled out Jack Colback. He exempted him from, if I had 11 Jack, Jack callbacks, <laughs> I thought to myself, poor Jack callback. Oh no, teacher's pet. No. Yeah, yeah, he's the teacher's pet now. And, uh, you know, everyone just is Just to like, clarify what the manager said, he's, he's, Jack Colback is literally sitting in the Newcastle trade ground today. Just to clarify, I do think he's a terrible manager to his, to his fellow <laughs> players. I, I know there's some things said in the press, but rest assured, I'm with you guys. I, I think he's terrible really, as well. I really, really don't like yeah. uh, Carver. But, you know, Ashley is the, is the man who is... Rightly getting the credit because Ashley's a man who hired Carver, a man who was not uh, really qualified for the job. I mean, he was, his, you know, an assistant manager. Um, and rather than go and uh, find someone, find a credible long term replacement for Alan Pardew, he stuck in a, a caretaker manager to the end of the season. Clearly looked at the table, thought, well, we've got 26 points from 20. We're already most of the way to safety. It will be fine. We're in 10th place. Teams behind us are terrible. They've got nine points since then, so nine points from 15 games. You know, at that rate, they're the team that's going down. Um, the question is whether the teams below them can be even worse, or whether these kind of... We saw Sunderland winning. Uh, we saw, obviously, Leicester winning a, a few times. Um, the, the great thing about the fixtures as, they, as they're coming up from Newcastle's point of view is that Sunderland and Leicester have to play each other. So one of, them is lo- one of them is losing points there at least. You know, Well, I suppose they could both draw. I mean, a draw is almost as dangerous to Newcastle if they were both to draw. Um, but, you know, uh, they will s- still probably get away with it. Um, I don't know, though. 
I mean, they are going to lose the rest of their games. They don't deserve yeah. to get away. They are in a position here where I, I, they, inclined, I don't see how a point even comes out of yeah, that team. Yeah, I, I would be inclined to say that it's bad that Sunderland and Leicester are playing each other because there's an excellent. One chance of them has of to them. get points. Yeah, one of them. But could, they only need to finish. They only need to finish ahead of one of those teams. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, yeah, that's yeah, that is true. But still, I mean, it's at 35 points. It, you know, you, no one is saying of Newcastle. You know, they just need a couple of points for safety. Everyone is saying. Surely, one of the other teams will get less than thirty-five their points. Goal no one has any faith in their ability. Their to. goal difference is plummeting as well. They're down to minus twenty-four, which is worse than those other teams we're talking about. Considerably worse than Leicester and Hull below them. A little bit worse than Sunderland and QPR. The only team that they've got slightly better goal difference than is Burnley, who are rock bottom at this stage. Yeah, um, so that, that is to use a cliche again. That's another point. I mean, there's a lot of... Carver is saying... So you've got like, your relegation six-pointer and then you've also got your extra point that you get for... So there's actually yeah. seven points at stake in some of these games towards the yeah. end of the season. Depending on how many goals you can stick past. <laughs> <laughs> your, uh, your, your other relegation six-pointer uh, uh, opponent. They... Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of nonsense going on. I mean, Ashley obviously doesn't really speak much. You know, he... The last interview I remember Mike actually giving, he was talking to some guy outside the pub and he said he was definitely <laughs> going to sack, uh, do you remember, Alan Bargy? Uh, and then it turned out Alan Bargy was, was actually leaving soon after that, although he didn't sack him, as was said. Bargy was just headhunted by a club much lower down the table than Newcastle, who are now way above them in the table. Um, but, you know, when Carver says things like, uh, uh, I'm not going anywhere until someone comes to me and tells me otherwise, I'm not going to hide, I'm going to stand there and take it because I have to. He doesn't have to. He's not some, you know, it's not as though he's just a a pawn. You know, he actually has agency here. He didn't have to take this job. He's He did this of his own free will. You know what I mean? Mm. He obviously reckoned it would be a nice, nice maybe he'd be fancy. Could, you know, I could have a real good crack at this. Maybe, you never know, you know, I might manage to get into my, I mean, didn't Chris Hewton sort of become a manager by a similar... Uh, you know, David O'Leary was another took the assistant route into well, You know, sometimes an assistant can come in and do well. Yeah. He's come in and done really terribly. Um, you know, and partly that has to do with the with the way that Mike Ashley's run the club. But I, you wouldn't want to exempt him from all blame. Um, Steve McLaren is supposedly the replacement. We've, this has been kind of a rumour for a while that Newcastle are looking at McLaren to come in. And maybe this was part of Ashley's thinking. Um, I can't get McLaren out of Derby. He's promised them. He's going to stay there until the end of the season. But I'll get McLaren in at the end of the season. We'll stick Carver in until then. Um, Steve McLaren, I don't know if you saw anything uh, of his uh, his weekend, Owen, but it wasn't a very good weekend. Uh, Derby County have been in the top six of the championship, you know, in the playoff positions. Uh, they had, in fact, led the table, I think, th- on three different occasions and have been one of the strongest sides in the division all season. Uh, lose three nil on the last day and drop to eighth, and essentially their entire season crumbling mm. to dust in one. I mean, it's it's bad. It's bad from an Ireland point of view as well. I mean, yeah. Jeff Hendrick uh, was was playing for them. Richard Kyo uh, was out there playing for them, and it was honestly one of the saddest sights you can see. You know, in sport, I mean, remember what happened to them last season as well. They got to the um, playoff final last season. And then it was Richard Keogh's mistake at the very end of the playoff final. Bobby Zamora scored for QPR. So they kind of felt they should have got promoted then. And then once again, they're back. And at least we're definitely going to get the playoffs. We've literally not been out of the top six in the entire season. <laughs> and the last day, they're bang out of there. So that's what Steve McLaren, that's the Steve McLaren who looked, you know the way when, when a manager is under extreme stress like that and experiencing extreme disappointment, they often look a little... Uh, worn out, let's say a little drawn and haggard and uh, Steve McLaren was looking haggard enough uh, but not to worry He's got a sweet gig at Newcastle Well it could be, it could be a championship gig at Newcastle he could be back at Derby County with Newcastle and next, anyway we've talked enough about Newcastle at this stage And we're going to talk more about Newcastle We will With uh, John Carver in particular with Dion in a little while Um, We might as well talk about the champions uh, Chelsea Football Club who managed to beat Crystal Palace 1-0 and an Eden Hazard penalty after a uh, well, you know, Eden Hazard went to ground under a challenge, and uh, Chelsea won the title. And real happy again, you know, similar to the Arsenal game the other week, where nil um, nil, and at the end Chelsea oh, celebrate John Terry beating his chest, and 
you know, the, there wasn't really much drama in those last few minutes of the game against Palace, but Chelsea were just waiting for that final whistle. And when it went, you know, and John Terry didn't interview in the field and, um, you know, he's proved certain people wrong. People who, people who suggested he couldn't play twice in a week. Only one person suggested that. They know who they are. And uh, that was Rafa Benito. Obviously, Jose Mourinho then went in and um, he talked a little bit about uh, Pep Guardiola. Well, he didn't talk about Pep Guardiola. He said, essentially, um, maybe a smarter man than me would, would go to an easy, you know, a rinky-dink league where anyone can be champion as long as you're managing the biggest club. The kit man, you know. Uh, and then the he talks about the critics. You know, people are... Jose, people have suggested you're boring Chelsea. Um, so he says, uh, the people who have a big face to say we don't deserve it, uh, which isn't quite the same thing, by the way. Mourinho is saying, that, I don't think anyone's really saying Chelsea don't deserve to be champions. I think no. everybody's looking at it going, Chelsea are the best team. Nobody can beat them. Um, but the it other doesn't teams have to have be this a, way. The other teams have been a complete disgrace all season. The other teams have been bad, and Chelsea should be better. You would hope a, champion, a championship winning team would be more emphatic, maybe, you know, it's 1-0 it's, it's wins are great, but come on, you, you want to see a little bit more to really say, wow. It was know. like uh, United's last uh, victory under Ferguson, when everyone kind of thought that City were were better than them, but United kept winning and kept winning, and you were waiting for the one defining performance that said, ah, okay, fair enough, they're the champions, they deserve it, City go and beat them at Old Trafford, yeah. uh, in a totally pointless victory for City. And it doesn't mean anything to United in ways, but at the same time, you want the champions to play like champions. Well, Chelsea have played like champions in some of the games against the big teams. Mm, they haven't actually been that good in the games against the big teams. I think. I mean, the Manchester United comparison is an interesting one. I mean, they scored a good lot. You know, they scored a lot more goals than Chelsea that season, and they and they let in more goals, and they weren't. They were easier to beat and won more of their games. That that Manchester United team. Um, 89 points they finished with, which is a, which is a pretty good total. And it's a, they also had a big margin. It was a kind of a race without drama. It was, you know, everyone knew sort of before Christmas who was going to win the league that season. And this season has kind of been the same. Um, Chelsea haven't played either. They played better in the big games last season. They won yeah. most of them. But this, this season they've drawn quite a few. But the point is that they've been impossible to beat when, uh, you know, by everybody except um, who knocked them out of the Champions League again? I can't believe it. I've forgotten who knocked Chelsea out of it. PSG. Ah. And even PSG didn't really beat them. They beat them three all on away goals. Um, so, you know, uh, that's that's really what it's been about. And there, and there is strength in that, and you have to respect it, but it's not exciting. Um, now, what Mourinho says to that, and we're not saying they don't deserve it, they do deserve it. Mourinho says the people who say we don't deserve it, they have a big face, say we don't deserve it, are the ones who, in my country, we have a saying for, the dogs bark... The caravan goes by. What's that supposed to mean? I think what it means is that uh, the dogs are the critics. Uh, the caravan is Mourinho, Chelsea, Chelsea Football Club, their procession to the to the title. And the dogs are there yapping, 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 yapping on the side of the road. Maybe running along the side of the road. Maybe helping for something to be thrown. Sardines, maybe, from Portugal, to be thrown from the caravan. But uh, the caravan just goes on. Imperious. It's almost as though... The caravan and the dogs exist in different worlds. It's almost as though the dogs are of no relevance to the caravan at all. You know, just this sort of a general annoying sort of background noise, which is soon going to be gone because the caravan will be on its way. I think that's what uh, Mourinho's trying to say. What if there's a pet dog in the caravan, maybe with his head sticking out the window, being that's brought on holidays? A lap dog yeah. pining to join in with the rough crew on the, <laughs> on the street? Stuck up in the caravan with Jose driving. I'm taking this a little too He does have a dog, doesn't he? he? Remember, he 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 once went on the run or something from the authorities. Remember, he oh, he yeah, refused yeah, to yeah. They, he refused to he escaped out the back door of his house or something when the <laughs> when the animal inspectors came to imprison his dog, and then he did this whole routine afterwards about how England had become a police state or something because his right. dog. Do you remember that? Know. His his dog hadn't been through the proper quarantine or something, right. and. Uh, he, he, you've come to arrest the dog, have you? Something along those lines. So yeah, he probably does have a, have a kind of a lap dog. Um, but you know, that's that's him. He's he's happy with it. What have the other managers been saying about their abject failure to impact upon the league? They sound pretty, really chilled out about it. They don't really seem to care. Um, Pellegrini, maybe he feels he's in his last few games. Uh, he points out, we did exactly the same Chelsea did this year, but we scored 158 goals last year. So, <laughs> something to think about. 
<laughs> like, well, you, you have a, the problem Pellegrini has, obviously, is that this year has been poor. Uh, Louis van Gaal, things falling apart for Manchester United. It's just lucky for them that Liverpool behind them have, are falling apart at the same I mean, Liverpool actually gained on them because they beat Queen's Park Rangers. Manchester United lost three in a row now, haven't scored uh, for three in a row, which is uh, amazing. I mean, it's back, what was it, 88 or 80? It's late 80s anyway, since they've uh, done that. Um, Robin van Persie missed a penalty. Uh, will Robin van Persie remain a penalty duties, Louis? No. He is now at the end of the road. It's always the same. Wayne Rooney has missed also. When you miss, you are at the bottom again. So, new penalty taker uh, for Manchester United will be. This is a strange setup for Manchester United. I mean, they had Fellaini at centre forward and Rooney and van Persie in midfield. Which seemed uh, it's what everyone has been saying all season. But Van Persie just doesn't really fit in. But the the current Van Persie doesn't fit in. Maybe if he was in peak form and fitness, they'd find a way. Mm. But when he's there, it's almost just seems to create a problem for Van Hal when he's fit and available. Which it shouldn't. He's supposed to be a genius manager. He should he should find a way. I guess you would argue. Could you see Van Persie going back to Arsenal? Not impossible. I mean, Van obviously didn't want Fabregas. You know, maybe Van Persie would be in a different category. Maybe he would be in the category of, oh, you know, Robin, you're, you're, let's bring you back to your spiritual home. Kind of like an extended version of that Thierry Henry loan deal. Yeah. You can, no, Van Persie wouldn't sit in the bench, would he? No. No, he wouldn't, just wouldn't do it. I don't know if it, but I mean, Wenger was talking about uh, Giroud, um, Olivier Giroud, who was slagged off. Well, not slagged off, just Thierry Henry said, I don't think he's good enough. They need a top, 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 uh, top player in that position. And Giroud, maybe he's only top top. <laughs> so uh, Wenger says, "I think he's wrong. He's paid for that. We know uh, we know all the system now of the modern media, especially on TV. I know how it works. They push you to be controversial because they give you a lot of money. Uh, I mean, I don't think this is a controversial view from Henri uh, in the slightest. It's like obvious. The controversial thing would be if Henri was to insist that Giroud is definitely good enough. You know, don't don't sign anybody." Arsene, because this man will win you the title. That would be controversial. That would be crazy. You know, Giroud, how long has Giroud been trying at this stage? What, four, four seasons? And, you know, all he's ever done is kill rabbits. He's made a lot of rabbit soup. He's made rabbit stew, rabbit casserole. But sometimes, at some point, <laughs> Has a little like, rabbit stool on. Yeah. Whole, I mean, he's done everything he can with rabbits. Lucky, lucky rabbit's feet all over the place. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's almost weird at this point. You're thinking... Can we not have a steak, even some sausages? And uh, and it's just not going to happen. I mean, it's never going to happen. I'm just enjoying how much Henri is, how, how it's slowly dawning on him that there might be something to this point of view. <laughs> People react to things I say. Hang I'm on. not sure if I like it, yeah. but at least I, I, the, the robotic approach to it, which appeared to be, I thought there could just be two years of Thierry Henry on TV with nobody commenting, him just being there. Just yeah. sort of wallpaper, just there. Whereas he's actually becoming, he's becoming a bit of a phenomenon in his way. Oh yeah, now he's maybe it's all starting from here. Maybe you know he hit that low point there a couple of weeks back. Everybody got his back, and suddenly he realizes, hang on, actually, <laughs> the job isn't actually that easy. The the fact that I'm getting paid so much money immediately gets people's back up, and if I if I then I'm seen to just not justified at all, I'm I'm quickly going to become a kind of a figure like George Osborne or something like this, like a universally a reviled you, figure. Yeah, I listened to Graham Hunter's new podcast. His first interview was with uh, Gary Neville. Oh yeah, I have a really good interview. I have a feeling that. Um, Thierry Henry mightn't have put quite as much thought into his point of your career as Gary Neville does. No. Gary Neville's really interesting. Even watching the games, he says he spends the first 10 or 15 minutes watching this panoramic view of the pitch over in the one part of the studio in Sky Sports. It starts working out what patterns are there, then sits down to watch the game. If something major happens, if he notices something happening, again, he'll go back to the panoramic view. and have a, Maybe Henri does that too. Maybe Henri thinks, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. So wanders over <laughs> to the panoramic shot for a little while just because that's what Neville is doing. Yeah, if the, if the, yeah well, I, mean, I, I think in fairness to Henri that it's it's not so much that he's going to do more work, it's just, I'm going to say what I really think, like, 10% of the time now. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the work ethic necessarily is going to change massively. It's just maybe sprinkle in a little bit of what I really think about football here yeah. and there. Not, no, that's not going nuts here either. Because he is, he should have a have the kind of opinion you respect. That, that, that Neville uh, interview was interesting, all right. Um, the panoramic view, by the way, do you have Sky or, like, UBC? Uh, I mean, I've got UBC. 
Can you get that view on Sky? Oh, no, I don't think it's a televised view. Why do they not have that view? Everybody should, you know. Is that, Does everybody not want that view now? I want to be able to see what's really happening. Well, you I want to see the, the patterns like Gary Neville. I don't want to just watch a guy running around after a ball. What does that tell me? Out of strips of context. What does it tell me? Uh, it, they, a lot of the halftime analysis is with that panoramic view. And you know the way they sometimes they have... They pick out the three midfielders and they demonstrate that these are the positions that they're playing in. Mm. That's the view that Neville is talking about, but you actually very seldom see that mm. on the other than for like little two or three. I don't seconds. think you'd want to be watching a, a full game in that. Well, why not? I don't. I mean, are you? You'll miss the goals. Are you? Oh, you're, yeah, the goals. Don't care about goals. As Gary Neville says, the Charlie Adam goal. Pff, no interest. <laughs> I don't care about goals. I mean. But he, His no. point is, what can I tell somebody that, that they don't already know about the Charlie Adam goal? He kicked he turned, the ball he into it the was goal. Amazing. Yeah. Whereas he wants to talk about patterns. Uh, well, I, do, I do take that point, but I, I do quite enjoy goals myself. I have to disagree with Gary. And, you know, like the little things the guys do with the ball sometimes are really good. You know, you like watching that kind of stuff. I mean, did you see Barcelona on the weekend? Oh? Yeah, you can't see all the Suarez's nutmegs yeah. from that uh, high vantage point. It's just like, wow, uh, you know, number nine is, appears to have gone past the player in very little space. Uh, you know, that's good, uh, good penetration by him. But it is better when you see... Uh, and nutmeg sort of up close. You know, when you, when you see the, f- the face of the, uh, in the super slow motion close up, the, the HD face of the nutmeg player reacting. Ooh. Like, <laughs> there was a couple of good shots in the Mayweather Pacquiao match. You know, the, the, the punch that Pacquiao hit Mayweather with in the fourth round. Oh, yeah, when he, the only time he really. The left, left hand. Is he really kind of connected one time in the whole fight? But you could see May- Mayweather has got these amazing reactions, you know? And the HD slow motion replay of that punch was incredible because Mayweather had, you know, somehow or other made a mistake and suddenly he looked, you could see his eyes looking up to register this glove coming straight for his, the middle of his face. And you could honestly see his expression go, oh, I can't believe I've just done made this. Made a mistake here. He, he had time to react in this tiny, tiniest uh, uh, fraction of a second. To, to, to just go really disappointed with myself <laughs> is oh no bang and you know but um, you wouldn't get that from maybe an overshot an, an, over, an overview I should say you wouldn't uh, I just just to mention on the, the semi-finals of the Champions League are this week and they're going to be well particularly the Bayern Barcelona game I think is a really exciting game in prospect Barcelona won 8-0 on the weekend uh, their front three has now scored between them 108 goals uh, so they're every time they score a goal, that's a new record for a front three Barcelona. The previous was 100. Uh, Suarez, 24. 24 goals is pretty good, considering he only started playing in like November. Mm-hmm. Um, Neymar, 33. Messi, 51. Um, 8-0. Okay, Bayern is probably going to be tougher. But Bayern um, lost 2-0 on the week. I was watching a bit of this game, and they're really terrible. I mean, it was awful. You know, just we do have to say that this was a Bayern Munich team which was resting the key players that aren't injured yet. Uh, I mean, there was a few of them playing, like Lamb played, Götze played, uh, Schweinsteiger played, and Neuer, obviously. But, uh, and then they had guys like Claudio Pizarro. Claudio Pizarro, you know, amazing. He's still there, and he's playing for Bayern Munich, not playing very well. 2-0, they ended up losing. Um, but Guardiola's kind of saying, well, look, the Bundesliga's over. Um, Dortmund, Sebastian Kale at Dortmund had said, well, maybe Bayern should practice penalties sometimes. I mean, that was just terrible. They lost, missed all four penalties. This is, frankly, that's a disgrace. Guardiola's like, yeah, you know, you know when you're 35 points behind in the league, you know, this is what you should do. Shh. <laughs> and he does this. And then he's, then he's like, you know, the league's over now. Uh, we can concentrate on preparing training for the game. But this is very similar to what happened last season. You know, they won the league really early. Um, which is which is a great achievement, obviously. Mm. But then it kind of became a Completely bit of a... Completely dulled their edge, yeah. Really did. And, you know, uh, last season they didn't have the injuries that they have now. Uh, we'll wait to see if Lewandowski makes it. What I game. will say in this one is that they had that... I can't quite remember their quarterfinal last year, but the quarterfinal this year... Manchester United with David Moyes. Of course, yeah. Their quarterfinal this year, I think it might have sharpened their competitive instinct even a little more than that, mm. given how uh, they come from behind nature, the victory, and how riled up they had to get for it. That was Bayern at their very best, and that was only a couple of weeks ago, so... You would think this is a team, though, that has got Messi, Suarez, and Neymar playing really well. And, and I mean, that's it's not as though the rest of the Barcelona players are not, you know, high level players. <laughs> They're definitely a better team than Porto. Vulnerabilities Bayern can exploit, but you know, we haven't even mentioned Real Madrid Juventus. It is the um, it is the it's uh, the, the, the Robin Robin to the Batman of the other semi final, I think. But 
yeah, it uh, should be good to talk about those on Thursday. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Dion Fanning was at the King Power Stadium in Leicester. Dion, I assume you arrived to see Nigel Pearson and in particular his media relations this weekend, but it was John Carver who ends up being at the centre of attention. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was extraordinary, really. Pearson came in and, you know, obviously, and, and journalists maybe have a kind of you know, vested interest in what Pearson had been, how he'd been behaving during the week. Uh, although I think the sympathy had kind of uh, swung back a little bit in his favour after he was, you know, subjected to that kind of lecture uh, on Thursday, and you know, asked if he would consider taking anger management courses. Um, but you know, he came. Pearson came in and made this very persuasive case, especially after how Leicester performed, about how you know what happens between him and the media. He may make mistakes, but what happens there has no bearing on what he's doing with his team and what you know, uh, you know, he's getting from his team. And after the way Leicester played, you'd kind of agree with him and kind of think, well, you know. Maybe we've all got carried away with what goes on in press conferences. They're not really indicative of anything. Uh, meanwhile, you know, outside there's the Newcastle team bus and parked right outside the press conference room. So every so often a Newcastle player will appear and you would just hear whatever Newcastle fans had managed to get round to. You would just hear these shouts of coward and uh, you're gutless and this kind of stuff. And suddenly then Carver comes in much later, having spoken to the Newcastle managing director, apologising for being late, uh, and manages, and suddenly makes you think, okay, what happens in press conferences does tell you something, because he uh, refuses to kind of uh, obey any of your know, football's conventions about what happens in the dressing room, stays in the dressing room, you know, attacks Mike Williams and the rest of the players, and just gives this, paints this picture of, of Newcastle at war with itself, totally crumbling. And really, if there weren't, if they, if it hadn't been for their season, their form when Alan Pardew was there, you know, you would say that they're, they, they should be relegated. I think they'll probably survive, but it won't be because of any, anything they're doing at the moment. Was there, um, I mean, everybody says about uh, John Carver, he's a, he's a good man. He's from the area. I saw Alan, uh, Alan Shearer saying about him, um, on Match of the Day recently. He's from the area. He loves the club. Um, but was there a bit of the Pontius Pilots about his uh, performance on Saturday in terms of, you know, don't blame me. I've got to fight the character, the determination we need. It's just a pity that none of these players, with the exception of Jack, Jack Callback and maybe Tim Krull, uh, they just don't have it. Yeah, it was. It, that was the thing. Uh, you know, this is the thing. It's, this is the kind of... the the. The thing about football management, and you see it with someone like Graeme Souness and Roy Keane to a degree as well, when they say things about players that you kind of think the ordinary man would agree with. The Newcastle supporter would probably agree with everything John Carver says about the players. And he said, you know, if I've been in, again, playing on that thing as, as the local guy who's just trying to, you know, he's he, a supporter himself. If I'd been in the stand, I'd have been saying the same things as the, as the supporters were. But... You wonder when you're saying, I'm the man with the fight, how that, you know, you, well, you don't even wonder, you know how that's going to go down in the dressing room. And I thought it was interesting that Mike Williamson's statement yesterday apologized to his teammates and to the supporters. Uh, it didn't make any mention of John Carver, because what Carver said about him was, was you know, beyond, beyond what you expect uh, or what you, you know, anything a manager can say. It's, you know, one of the, one of the biggest accusations you can make about a, about a professional, that he kind of got himself took himself out of the, out of the game because he, he took the easy way out. It was an incredible thing to say. And how, you know, when he was asked, Carver was asked, was he, you know, was this going to make it difficult for, for him to motivate the players? You know, he kind of admitted, yeah, well, maybe it, maybe it will. Like, it's, uh, 
it was it's a kind of crazy scene. And at the same time, Carver is kind of absolved from blame, understandably, because he's just put in there by Mike Ashley to kind of muddle through and get them to the end of the season. Is he really absolved from blame, though? I mean, if this keeps going as it's going at the moment, John Carver is going to be surely remembered as one of uh, villainous is a little bit hard. He seems like a very affable guy, but certainly uh, one of the the great tragic figures in Newcastle United's football history. Yeah, if if they go down, he, yeah. he would be. Uh, that that's true. I think they probably won't go down. But even if even if they did go down, you would have to say he's just he's promoted uh, way above the position he, he should be holding, um, and people in the club should have known that. And I think Newcastle have gambled and it may yet pay off on there being three worse teams in the in the Premier League than them. And their gamble has always been on this kind of you know again it's it's a kind of like metaphor for our times. It's like austerity caught make people you know work on the bare minimum and assume that you can kind of get by uh, without whilst removing all ambition and kind of knocking the spirit of of, of an institution inside and out and that's what they're doing and maybe they'll survive but it's it's doesn't seem to be much of a way to run a football club i mean it's newcastle united i suppose has this, has a certain reputation for being like uh you know that the fans are maybe more sentimental than the average fans more prone to getting carried away you know which is part of what has made them uh has made newcastle an exciting club to follow and you know, p- people really do get swept up whenever they whenever they start to play well. It becomes this huge sort of a thing, uh, and then when they, as frequently happens, <laughs> go through these mi- miserable periods of form, the misery is so acute. Um, the, so these are fans who really kind of feel their club. But r- right now, I don't think they've ever had uh, they've ever been in a situation like this where there's just this kind of rage and hatred against um, the the board and the owner. It's a kind of a new situation for Newcastle to be in. But I wonder, do you think, I mean, there was a David Squires cartoon about this where, um, you know, he showed Mike Ashley as this kind of cynical figure, you know, just um, it kind of was, was about Ashley's regime. But, that's, you know, you can see the fans there protesting and they're, the signs they were holding up were saying, we promise we're not going to renew our season tickets, maybe, <laughs> you know, for like a few minutes. And, uh, it, you know, he's always kind of banked on just the loyalty of those supporters, that there's, it's, it's essentially an inexhaustible resource that can never be mined to extinction. Is he actually, do you think, maybe approaching the point where he's driving Newcastle United's fans away from Newcastle United? I think it's getting there because I don't think, you know, even when they were relegated before, uh, <laughs> there was something of that, that, you know, that sort of mood swing that you talk about with Newcastle. It was sort of consistent with one aspect of the club, you know, the kind of crazy highs and the massive lows, like that was sort of part of it. This, this is, this is almost, again, this is kind of the culmination of a philosophy. Like there's, there is a logic to where Newcastle are now. Uh, it is, you know, everything is stripped away. You know, the Wonga deal, the sports direct, reading the naming of the stadium, all these things uh, are, uh, you know, are in keeping with, what you see on the football field is the players going through the motions, supporters feeling increasingly detached from them, wondering what who they are, what they're doing. You know, this is this is the thing they keep saying that they're not actually looking for. Uh, they're not looking for these kind of crazy notions that people have about Newcastle fans. They just want a club that's trying, and they don't get this at any at any level. And uh, it would be it, it is it is interesting if you remove everything about what a football club should be. Will the supporters still still turn up the way you expect them to do? Because they're not turning up for what they believe the football club once was. So it's it's it, it is another 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 gamble by Ashley in a strange way. Dion, you mentioned the BBC's Pat Murphy. We mentioned him by name, but he was the guy who tore strips off, gave a piece of his mind to Nigel Pearson late last week uh, after Pearson's bullying of a journalist the previous day. This went on for about seven minutes. I have to say, I thought Pearson in this particular case was a model of restraint. It was one of the great examples of keeping your composure under insane pressure. Seven minutes of being told various negative things about your character. Do you genuinely think that might have done him a little bit of good in terms of public perception? I think so. I think it was, uh, yeah, I agree. Now, I wonder, 
obviously it wouldn't have happened if, if the things hadn't happened the night before, but would Pearson have reacted differently uh, <laughs> in, in another yeah. context if, if he had to listen to somebody you know, going through all this? And then at the end of it, I thought in the context of it and, in, and the way the tone was to say, have you ever considered anger management courses? Um, it, you know, it, it was, it was, it was ill judged. It looks I, as though he doesn't actually need them. I mean, he can keep his yeah, temper when he yeah, wants. But he should have, yeah, his response would be clearly not. I've listened to you for seven minutes. Um, and for then, the, for the journalist then to say, you know, well, I'm not, when he said, have you ever considered them? He said, well, no, I'm not the one making a fool of myself in press conferences. Well, uh, you know, you could argue that point after the, after the seven minutes you just listened to as well. Uh, so I think Pearson did do very well in that, and again he he, he did. Again, you know the thing about this is I very you know supporters and rightly Leicester City supporters won't care what Nigel Pearson is doing in in press conferences. And if if you see a journalist coming along and acting as a spokesman for for the industry, as as people like to call it, uh, then you know f- football supporters are going to think, well, this is kind of getting ridiculous, especially when you see Leicester play as they, they, they are playing at the moment, as they played on Saturday. And, you know, there is, there is no connection between the two. You know, there are things that happen off the field that affect the dressing room, but I don't think what happened with Leicester, you know, in, in the press conferences last week had any bearing on the team. So, um, just briefly, Dan, who do you think is, are, are going to be the three teams? I mean, we can maybe give you Burnley and Queen's Park Rangers. Uh, they're going to get relegated now. Um, but Villa, Newcastle, Hull, Leicester and Sunderland are all still within two points of each other for the third um, for the third spot, who do you think it's going to be? I think it's going to be Sunderland. Uh, you look, you know, they're way at Chelsea and Arsenal. Um, you know, even though Chelsea have nothing to play for, you wonder, like, how many points are they going to pick up? That, that's the problem. And Leicester are on a run. Uh, and you, I think they, they'll, they'll get enough to get out of it. Obviously, QPR and Burnley, you know, would be, you know, they would be exceptional for either of them to get out of it, and I don't think they will. So I, I'll go with Sunderland, and you know Sunderland saving Mike Ashley's skin. Dion, great stuff, thank you. Thanks a lot, lads. I particularly enjoyed Dion's. I'm actually just I'm slightly disappointed that Dion didn't insert a Geordie accent into his impression of the coward and gutless shouts that were coming from supporters <laughs> towards some players there. But at the point he made about. The Mike Ashley approach in Newcastle being uh, almost a story for our times. I don't know what you thought about that, Ken. That, right, there's all this, you, okay, you cut, you remove everything, you cut it right down to the bare bones, you take out any sort of ambition or any sense of joy, any spirit, and then still expect it to truck along as it has been doing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 arrogant, you know, just this notion that, uh, you know, this is, this is a lot like running a sportswear shop. You know what I mean? It's just all about, like, get, you know, buy the stuff, buy low, sell high. Um... This asset has become valuable. Let's sell it for precisely that value. It turns out footballers are a little less likely to accept, you know, zero hour contracts. To accept basically the killing off of any dream, any sort of uh, uh, aspiration to something higher than just showing up for work and doing a job for getting getting paid. You know, the agreed upon. So, I mean, imagine what the players thought when John Carver walked in to say, and they're kind of, well, "Where's the new manager, John?" He goes. <laughs> it's, it's me. So the players are sitting there going, "Okay, good well, John. No, seriously, seriously, about uh, you know, un- this until, is why we love John Carver. Hell of a yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until about five Local minutes lad, ago, I was see- I-, I was thinking of myself as a serious professional footballer who had a serious career. Now I, I see that the next few months of my of my uh, club career are just marking a bit of time till the transfer window. You know what I mean? When mm-hmm. we can, uh, it's. I think when you when you don't really give people any extra motivation. They're going to be a little less contract. grateful. Yeah. It's just not great. And it's not his, his whole attitude, Ashley's whole attitude is, is I think, short-sighted and wrong because it's like um, he has this idea that Newcastle will, he, having sunk money into them to begin with, I mean, you don't know why. Why did this guy take over? Newcastle is bizarre. But having sunk money into them to begin with, um, he then thought, well, hang on, this is really expensive. If I start doing this, I'm gonna, I'm, this is going to cost me a fortune. I can't do this. I can't, I can't um, be lashing money out in this thing. So what he did was he took the, all the money that he'd given to the club and marked it down as, a, as an interest-free loan. Said, there'll be no more of that. I won't take my money back right now. It's there in the books as an interest-free loan, kind of interest-free, um, which, he, which he can call back at any time. But we're going we're gonna to make the, the club is going to stand on its own two feet financially. I'm not going to be subsidizing it, which is, which is fine. But actually, what he's done is, le- is he spent even less than that. 
they've got money in the bank. They've got more than £30 million in the bank. They've been making all this money from the TV deal. But rather than reinvesting in the team, Ashley's just letting it sit there. It's as though he thinks Newcastle will one day actually become a kind of a cash-generating business, which will pay him back that way, when in fact the way that he should be looking to get paid back, if he wants to get paid back, which he does, would be to essentially invest the money in Newcastle to make Newcastle a bigger and better club that somebody will buy from him one day for a lot more money than he paid for it. And it's absolutely realistic that that would happen because, I mean, if you look at the income coming in from the from the TV, it's so much higher. Um, the capital value of Newcastle should be much higher, um, but not if they're going to be in the championship. That's the problem. That's why you've got to make sure that doesn't happen. And so far, he hasn't done enough to make sure that doesn't happen. Gabriele Marcotti has been writing about the comparison between Jose Mourinho's title-winning team, Jose Mourinho himself, and how he's managed the team this time around. Gabriele compared to his first spell at the club. And you think he's quite different now. How so? Well, I, I think the whole, the whole setting, the whole experience is different. Um, you know, if you, if you cast your mind back to 2004... Back then, you had a situation where Mourinho really had carte blanche. Uh, you know, the basically there was no director of football. Um, there were uh, there were agents who who basically did did his bidding and, and did the club's bidding. Uh, Abramovich was very green, very new to this. He just cut checks, um, and he did as he pleased. Uh, at least initially, um, the difference now is that when he accepted to to come back, he came into a very defined. Structure with a very clear hierarchy with a club that's that's obviously established, having won the Champions League, having won the Europa League, having won another league title, and he had to accept that, and he had to accept the fact that on on a number of matters uh, he had to defer uh, to the likes of, of Marina Granovskaya and uh, Michael Emanalo. Talk to us then a bit about Emanalo because this is maybe this is one of the areas that causes big conflicts within a lot of clubs. I mean, it's been a continual um, problems. Uh, Liverpool, for instance, this season over who has responsibility or who has the final say in terms of signing players. What we can see at Chelsea is that um, Mourinho has booted out uh, quite a few players, a lot of attacking midfielders, I mean, Mata, obviously, uh, but also um, guys like Salah, Schürrle, Kevin De Bruyne, who's been one of the best players in Germany. But there hasn't really been any... Um, any public feuding with uh, whoever was responsible for signing players he clearly didn't want. No, they, they, they've done a, and this is one of the changes. I mean, I think, first of all, they've done a tremendous job of keeping things um, under wraps. Uh, Michael Emanalo is not is not a sniper. He doesn't have an ego. He's not going to, uh, you know, necessarily go and um, and put the word out, for example, when, when Andre Schorle, who's a you know, world champion, a tremendous player, when he's not getting minutes, he's not going to go and use that to, to put pressure on the manager. Um, and uh, and equally, Marina Granovskaya is a very very clever executive. They they've managed to keep that part under wraps. Now, I think it's going to come to a head at some point because it's not lost on anybody that you know he he only used sort of really what twelve thirteen players this year uh, in terms of significant playing time, and uh, and that may or may not have something to do with you know, Chelsea sort of dropping off and not performing at the same level since January. So I think that's an, that, that's going to be revised, but. He accepted that he was going to be part um, of uh, of this hierarchy of this established club. Does he sign players at all, Gabriel? Because he's got no manager, unless you're Sam Allardyce. <laughs> no manager signs players uh, or Harry Redknapp. You know this idea of the manager going. Uh, this has to stop because you know that may have held true. Many many years ago, when you know you only signed English players, and you know you'd go and watch a reserve game from the team uh, in a division down, uh, you know twenty minutes down the road. But it's crazy to think that that a manager can go and can go and do this and run a negotiation and scout other players. Well, and Jose Mourinho is, is an unusual manager, though he's a special, very very special relationship with a very special agent in the form of George Mendes. Yeah, and what what tends to happen um, when you've got top managers uh, is that uh, an, an outside agent that they trust becomes a director of football. Now, in this specific case, things didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, obviously, uh, you know Diego Costa, Felipe Luis, and, and, and Thibaut Courtois coming from from Atletico Madrid. Um, you know, all those things. There's obviously a relationship there, uh, but. 
you know, Cesc Fabregas, for example, Mourinho played a big part in 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 trying to persuade Cesc that Chelsea was the right place for him. But you know, it's not like he or or Mendes went and uh, and negotiated the deal with Barcelona uh, or indeed the personal terms with uh, with Cesc Fabregas. That was left to other people, people who know people who know more and who know better. Gabba, if that is the case, then it puts even more of a premium on a manager being able to deal with the players on a personal basis that arrive at his door. And in the case of Mourinho, we know that the first time around, this was one of his key strengths, as well as all the tactics. He built up these guys to think that they were the best in the world. And that that superiority complex hadn't been there previously because there was no reason for it to be there. This time around, is he getting the same reaction? He certainly was more critical, maybe, of some of his players last season, the the lack of balls that some of the strikers were showing and so forth. But were those just the guys that were being shown the door? And is he as, is he as, uh, does he build up the current guys as much as he did the first generation of players? Um, you know, I, I think obviously the guys shown the door, um, you know, I think at some point we'll hear from Andre Shorla and, and he'll share his views. Um, and I think to some degree that the, the same might go for, for, for Juan Mata at some stage. Uh, but certainly the players he's working with, the players who are there, that, that same relationship uh, exists. You know, I, I think there's very few managers in the world who, who are as good as Mourinho at getting buy-in for, for, uh, from their players. Um, and I think that's a critical point. The other big point is that, which I think a lot of people have ignored, is, the, is simply a tactical one that you know, this season, in, in getting success Fabregas and deciding that he was going to have a deep-line playmaker alongside a ball winner like Nemanja Matic, he was that was, for him. That's a huge departure because he always had, you know, effectively two holding midfielders at Real Madrid um, and at Inter Milan, and really in his first Chelsea side as well. So um, I thought that was a very, very bold step uh, and something which perhaps people kind of overlooked. Well, maybe less bold, uh, given that he's got he's he's just moved the anchor players to uh, the wing wing and attacking midfield position. He's got he's got William, uh, he's got William and Oscar. Uh, as hard-working defensive players uh, just behind the striker. And then he's got Fabregas as his playmaker and Ivanovic as his, uh, as his goal-scoring uh, goal right from deep. I mean, that's one way to look at it, but I also think you could, uh, you could go and point it out that, you know, even, even assuming what you're saying is true, and I think, you know, uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, William and Oscar are merely defensive uh, defensive players higher up the pitch, I think is a bit uh, over the top. But, you know, it's still a departure for him. This is still a guy who, you know, at a pre- previous club had Cristiano Ronaldo on the wing. And, and uh, you know, he had uh, he, he had Mario Balotelli and Goran Pandev. He had, uh, he had uh, uh, Aryan Robin, in, you know, his first time around. So he, he did, you know, I, I, think, I think there was a restructuring there. And and I, and I think it does make a difference when, you know, when you go and you put a Cesc Fabregas there in front of the back four, uh, you are showing that you're different. You're trying something different from from what you did before, and for a big chunk of the season, it worked. I mean, he he does sound a little bit like the same. I mean, he he seems a little bit more bored by everything, bored by the world now than he did uh, back then, uh, and he's. <laughs> He's he's often I wouldn't say the word is depressed, but he's he's kind of quite lugubrious in his in his outlook. But yesterday in the in the afterglow of victory, it was interesting to hear um, how Chelsea spoke. Uh, you know, in, in the aftermath, first of all, there's Mourinho. Uh, he says, "Oh, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe um, I need to go work in a league where even the kit man can be uh, can be champion if you make him manager." Right. So it seems as though he's probably talking about Guardiola there and John Terry. Um, is you know almost in tears uh, of joy on the on the field, but still remembers to have a go at Rafael Benitez. That was a very loaded question, though. That was put to him. Yeah, I, I, because when I, I hadn't seen it live, and when I heard, read about it, I thought, oh, he's just out of nowhere. He's he's having massive pops at Rafael Benitez. But he was asked about people writing him off and saying he couldn't play two games in a week, and he just said, look. One person said that. Well, we all who, know who, who that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I thought though, is there a bit of? Do Chelsea still? Are they still kind of motivating themselves by? Um, let's show these. You know, they've got a list of enemies, and uh, yesterday they showed a lot of those enemies uh, what they were all about. I think in Mourinho's case, he just can't help himself. Um, you know, having a pop again, and you know, if somebody were to go back and look at all the Mourinho quotes. Um, you know, you'd find 
probably some of the same inconsistencies. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> what he came out and he said about how hard it was in the Premier League, blah, blah, blah. You know, he said the same thing when when, when he was in Serie A. He talked about how it was harder than anywhere he'd ever been because uh, there's far more pressure. Whereas in the Premier League, you know, in the Premier League, for you to get booed, right, by your own fans, you have to be just an absolute an, an, an absolute fool, right? Or you have to go and, and be absolutely horrible or not try or whatever. In the Premier League, you never get booed. In the Premier League, the, the you don't have to face the media every single day. In the Premier League, if your team does badly, you don't have fans outside your house, okay? I, so the, 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 there's, there's, this, there's a heck of a lot less pressure, even at a big club. Um, and there's uh, and, and, and he made the point that in the Premier League, when you play against the bad teams, yes, they run hard and they try hard for 90 minutes, but ultimately what they do tactically isn't particularly interesting or difficult. They play the same way for 90 minutes. In, in Italy, against uh, a, you know, a bad side, a cave or whatever, they'll constantly mess with their formation and they'll constantly give you things to think about tactically. It's a lot more draining. Now, this is something Jose Mourinho said. It's not something I'm saying. Um, but, but he probably said it because he was appealing to a different audience at the time. Now he comes here and it, it seems that you know, winning the Premier League, this Premier League, with all those teams in transition and teams underachieving, you know, as if it's like the, the, the toughest thing in the world, whereas uh, you know, winning the Liga in Spain uh, is, is a cakewalk and, uh, you know, and, and, and anybody could do it. Another thing he said, um, Gabriel, was uh, it's easy to be a pundit. Uh, as a pundit, you win every game. You don't lose matches. Fantastic job, really. Many, maybe in 10 years' time, it'll be my job. Then I will win every game. Do you feel as though you win every game? I mean, do you walk away from every game flushed with victory, thinking to yourself, my God, what an easy life this is? I, th- I think I'm pretty lucky that uh, I, can, uh, I can express opinions and, uh, and, and, and watch football and get paid for it. But no, I, it's... Look, I mean, this is what the guy does. He talks. Remember early this season with the, with the whole campaign against Chelsea and all that nonsense, and yet you know they go out and 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 they win the title and get some dubious calls going their way as well. Um, you know, it's it's funny because by the same token, he is a master manipulator of of, of the punditocracy in the sense that. You know, you look at the way the, the the media adore him. This business with with Chelsea being boring, apart from the fact that I think is completely is completely not true. Certainly not this season. Um, he, he he takes it to heart like it's some kind of rallying cry. This is simply because the guy uh, you know believes in in rallying his team around temples, and he does it very very effectively. Um, but he is right on one thing. Uh, you know. When you know, th- there's a lot of, I think a lot of the critics out there evaluate things incorrectly or, or make wrong uh, predictions, and, and and they do get forgotten. Uh, when you know Mourinho or another manager makes a wrong call on somebody, uh, then you know people do tend to throw it back in his face. Okay, got ready. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Emil. My pleasure. Yeah, it sounds like this. Gabriel has got a little bit more love for Chelsea's title win than most other people do. Doesn't feel they're necessarily uh, particularly boring. I don't know what you think about the point that it's easier. Mourinho, uh, if Mourinho in any way is trying to suggest that it's more difficult than the Premier League, it really isn't because in the past he has managed in Italy and Spain. And in Italy in particular, you're a lot more likely to get... I do feel, uh, maybe it depends on the ground that you go to, but there is a fair bit of booing of your own team that goes on in the Premier League. I'm thinking Arsenal in particular. Mm, I'm trying to think of when Chelsea. Not this go, season. Chelsea it may, it may, it's probably pretty rare. I mean, Chelsea. didn't didn't they get booed when they lost to, at home to Atletico last season in the, in the Champions League? Um, it's kind of that's, I guess, the point that Gabriele is making as well. I'm gonna maybe uh, put words in his mouth here, but is that some of that is pantomime booing? It's not really going to hurt you. A huge amount, whereas the more specific types of abuse you can get in Italy with mm. people turning up at the training ground, etc., is yeah. slightly more intimidating. And I they start um, throwing flour and eggs on your car and stuff. Um, it's a slightly dip- more difficult environment to, to manage in. Yeah, although I have to say, um, Spain seems to be the most difficult environment he's managed in. I mean, it's definitely the one where he was least successful. He only won the league once in three seasons and uh, left the country 
<laughs> with everybody delighted to see the back of him. So, uh, so I'd say that was probably even more difficult really from his point of view. Loads more from the weekend in our next podcast, which we're working on at the moment. We'll have it out for you today. We're, we're talking Pacquiao Mayweather, McElroy's latest win, Waterford Hurlers in the league, and the future of European rugby after a. I was about to say a fairly turgid all-French affair, but it wasn't actually. It was a decent enough game. It's just that it's just that it existed just no one cared. something of a vacuum and didn't get a huge amount of coverage over here. So we'll chat about all of that. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank Thanks you, very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening. Check out secondcaptains.com if you want any info on any of the shows. Take care. What's going on? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.